happen. Don't take that personally. <laughs> Ready? All right. I don't know. Are we good? Oh, good. Glad you're here. We want to honor your time. Um, basically, the way today will work, I'm not going to do a long introduction. Hopefully, uh, you were at chapel. You got a, a fuller introduction, not just um, to Jamar, but to um, what we're doing here, the Reformation Day lectures, the context of this particular series um, that we think is very important. So I won't take a lot of time with that. Uh, I do want to pray for us, um, but I want to let you know the format of what's going to happen one of the things we really enjoy uh, about afternoon sessions like this is the plan for today is the, the talk will probably be about 35, 35, 30, 35 minutes, something like that. And then we really have until 5, 5.15. Um, I know some of you will need to sneak out at some point, but we would like to have an extended time of Q&A. So... Um, Think about 30, 35 minutes of, of a lecture, and then I want to open it up, and um, I'll kind of uh, help direct questions uh, to our guest, and we want you to ask about things that you're curious about from this morning's chapel, from stuff you hear right now, um, or to things that are related. Um, this is an opportunity to pick someone's brain who's been thinking about these difficult issues for a very long time, not simply thinking about them, but living them. Um, and so as a community, we need to be courageous enough and thoughtful enough to, to ask questions, sometimes that are uncomfortable, sometimes that expose us in some of our ignorance, sometimes they're, they're critiques, whatever, but this is an opportunity for us to graciously and humbly listen, learn, and ask. Does that make sense? Let me pray for us. Our Father, you are a good God, and all that you made is good. And yet we also confess that even in your goodness and the goodness of your world, there is sin and brokenness. And it resides not just out there, but in us. And it runs through us. I do pray that you would give us a time, this hour, to work. We believe that your spirit is real, so would you surprise us? Would you nudge us? Would you challenge us? Would you comfort us? Would you motivate us? questions and nobody says anything for like 30 seconds. So if you are attentive, you can
is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Luther's got a dilemma. Is it faith or is it works? How would he get... ...tried to do for most of his life was work toward a sense of righteousness. Was to be so holy that he felt right with God, but he could never do it. But Protestant Christians often say, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. In other words, as Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so salvation is a gift, but the evidence of your salvation is your works. James 2 is addressing believers who are excusing their lifestyle of comfort and neglect of the poor by saying they're justified by faith in their works and it has no bearing on the state of their souls. Martin Luther was reflecting on that principle and that idea of righteousness and he said, I hated that word. The righteousness of God. By which I had been taught, according to the custom and use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. So he felt unrighteous. He felt under God's condemnation. And so he hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. But then, Luther came to a particular verse, Romans 1.17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, righteousness by faith wasn't a new concept. It was in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, the soul, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. All the way in the Old Testament, it's saying that. 
Now understand the context here. Luther is in, 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 in the midst of the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine taught that human beings had a spark of goodness in them whereby they themselves sought out God. But Luther came to understand that it's a, not a person's righteousness that they earn themselves. Rather, it's the righteousness that comes from God and is received as a gift by faith. And when Luther realized what that meant, that righteousness was a gift to be received, not a goal to be achieved, he said this. When I discovered that I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through, it was an epiphany, transformed his entire faith. He went on to say, from that moment, I saw the whole face of Scripture in a new light. And now, where I had once hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of phrases, so that this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise to me. He called this imputation or this, this gift of righteousness the, quote, sweet exchange. Now, why do I talk about Luther and this idea of righteousness, because it gives us what we receive and know as the Protestant Reformation. From some of Luther's realizations, he started talking about what we call sola fide, by faith alone, and sola scriptura, by scripture alone. No authority or the final authority be, being in scripture itself. And in 1517, on October 31st, coming right up, he nails the 95 theses to the church doors at Wittenberg and sparks what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Why talk about the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago when we're talking about a racial reformation in the 21st century? Here's why. And if you don't remember anything else, remember this. As the doctrine of salvation by faith alone as the doctrine of salvation by faith alone was to the reformation of the 16th century, so is the doctrine of the image of God to the reformation of the 21st century. So we know that the doctrine of faith alone was central to reforming the church 500 years ago and everything that came after it. I would contend to you that if we're talking about a 21st century racial reformation, then the doctrine of the image of God needs to be just as central. Which, guess what? It means disrupting your categories a little bit because we're used to thinking about faith alone, scripture alone, the, the, the five solas, and that being the reformation. Well, if the church is always reforming, then we also need to be expanding our definition of what it means and what needs to be reformed. And so considering racism in the church, then we better have a deep, deep understanding of theological anthropology, which we get at through a doctrine of the image of God. It's central. An investigation into the image of God helps both those in the racial majority and those in the racial minority. For those in the majority, meaning white people, it challenges the negative assumptions you receive about people of color, and it calls into question one's own assumptions of superiority. And for racial and ethnic minorities, understanding the image of God helps restore the dignity, identity, and significance, as one of my mentors says, that they possess 
as God's special creation. I'll say more on that later. First of all, let's unpack this doctrine of the image of God briefly. Then I'm going to show you some ways that, that, that we have defaced the image of God, particularly in people of African descent. So it comes from Genesis 1, which is significant. This is before the fall. God said, let us make man, meaning humankind, in our image after our likeness. That's where we get the phrase imago Dei in Latin, image of God, or image and likeness of God. What does it mean? doesn't mean that we are God. It means we reflect God in certain ways. Not always. We're not infinite. We're not infallible. We're not all-powerful. But we have personalities. We have intelligence and creativity. And so we resemble God in certain ways and certain attributes. Some theologians think that being made in the image of God applies only to particular faculties, like your ability to reason or the presence of an immortal soul. Others emphasize humanity's ability to make moral and ethical choices. Some focus on a person's intellect or the ability to exercise dominion of the earth. Herman Bavink, theologian, believes, quote, this image extends to the whole person. While all creatures display vestiges of God, only a human being is in the image of God and is such totally in soul and body, in all of his or her faculties and powers, in all conditions and relations. In other words, human beings are unlike any other creation of God. Gives them unique and special significance. By the way, that's everyone, not just Christians. Not just straight people, not just white people, not just rich people. Anyone, by virtue of your humanity, is made in the image, of likeness, image and likeness of God and therefore is deserving of respect, appreciation, protection. Here's the thing. None of this is new, particularly in reformed circles. What I think in the 21st century, if we are tackling the doctrine of the image of God again, what we would do is expand it. Both human beings in the individual sense and humans as a collective community are in the likeness of God. In other words, you and I individually are made in the image and likeness of God, but no single person and no single people group or racial and ethnic group can reflect the diversity of God's creation. We are together in the image and likeness of God. So one of the things that's difficult for white Americans to understand is this idea of group solidarity. This idea that if something happens to someone, maybe I don't even know them, in some sense, I am affected by it. Do you, did you hear about the massacre at the synagogue in Pittsburgh? Jewish people have always been a minority in whatever broader society they've been a part of. So, so how do you think Jews around the country and even the world reacted when someone walked in and killed 11 other Jewish people. Do you think they felt some of that pain? Do you think they felt some of that sorrow? That's the idea of group solidarity. How do you think we as black Americans feel when 
when someone lynches Emmett Till or Eric Garner screams out on video, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe unto death. Do you think we might feel that? I've never met Eric Garner. But it causes tears to well up in my eyes. I'll never forget Philando Castile. That one got me. He was driving in a routine traffic stop turned deadly. What, what, what really got me about that particular murder, he was in the car with his girlfriend and her daughter. And, and I always knew that as a black male in America, there's something called driving while black, which makes you an immediate suspect. It makes you immediately threatening. And I always knew that if I was ever driving alone, something could happen to me. So I kid you not, I keep the cell phone on a clip on the vent. And if I ever get pulled over, I turn on the video camera. So you will see if something happens, what actually went down. That's just how we have to think. But I always thought, well, if I'm driving with my wife and my son, who's eight, they're not going to think I'm a threat. I'm a family man. We're in this little Honda Civic. I'm not going to be a threat, but that's the same situation Philando Castile was in. And he's dead. And so my point is, it can be hard if you're in a majority group to feel a sense of connection to folks you don't even know. You have this you know, sort of sense of individuality but minorities of all kinds have more of a sense of, of communal solidarity and group identity. But I want to say there's a theological point to that. That in some senses, as a human community, we're supposed to have this, this solidarity and, and, and this empathy, not because just because we share the same race or, or, or gender or geographic area as someone else, but because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And so as humans, we should rejoice when others rejoice. We should weep when others weep. We should carry one another's burdens because we're all in God's image. We're all in God's likeness. And together, we reflect and glorify God. Now, there are some specific implications of the image of God in terms of race. If we're each made in God's likeness, then any presumption of superiority denies this truth. A book I'll recommend for all you theology nerds out there, From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race. The author J. Daniel Hayes says, racism or the presupposition that one's own race is superior or better than another is a denial that all people have been made in the image of God. This morning I said racism is murder. We base that on the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. We looked at the Westminster Catechism and unpacked how racism, which is anger or hatred toward another because of your race or your culture, can be a form of murder. Racism is also a violation of the doctrine of the image of God. It means that your image is better than someone else's image. Racism denigrates the image of God in other human beings. And here's my other point, if you want to take away two points from this talk. 
American culture has been defacing the image of God in people of African descent for centuries. Nearly 400 years after the first dark-skinned people arrived in the, quote, new country, because folks were already here, Africans in America still stagger under the weight of this country's racial history. Martin Luther King said, discrimination is a hellhound that gnaws at Negroes in every waking moment of their lives to remind them that the lie of their inferiority is accepted as truth in the society dominating them. Or, as James Baldwin put it, the American triumph in which the American tragedy has always been implicit was to make black people despise themselves. How does this happen? How, do, how does white supremacy make black people despise themselves? It's the way folks characterize black people. So I want to go through a couple visual examples. And remember, think about questions that you might want to ask later on. So this got me. It's called, it's a book called The Negro, A Beast, or In the Image of God, written in the 19th century. Based on that picture, what do you think the author's answer is? He's saying that black people are closer to beasts that need to be controlled and domesticated than to Euro-American people who are made in the image of God. Therefore, the implication is that the black person's proper place in society is in servitude, in this case, slavery, under white people, because only white people are the fullest expression of the image of God, and under their benevolent care, black people might be elevated somewhat, but there's still a distinction between the image of God and a beast. So there's, this is justified, he's trying to justify it from the Bible. Here's another one. You may be familiar with Jim Crow as a phrase. Uh, in the United States, it was a system of laws and customs that reinforced white supremacy after slavery and emancipation. So you, you realize that racism didn't go away after the Civil War, right? I mean, that's not news to you, is it? Because it seems like it is to some people today, if you read the news. But it didn't go away. Racism reinvented itself as Jim Crow, which relied on segregation and subjugation, and at the end of the day, it relied on violence like lynching and rape to reinforce this system of white supremacy. And part of Jim Crow was to make caricatures and amplify caricatures of people of African descent. So for males, there's this character of Jim Crow who, who was uh, a minstrel character. It was a play and a comedy and it was very popular. It was a white man in blackface. Now, if you look closely at the clothes, they're all meant to be exaggerated. So these, these clothes are, are, are stitched together. They're falling apart. They're, they're mismatched and raggedy. The features are exaggerated. But racism is gendered, meaning racism plays itself out differently for men and women. And so for women, one of the images was the, the mammy figure. The idea of, of this big black woman who could cook, 
who uh, nursed white babies, who was a domestic servant. One of the things that plays out is the perception that black women can endure more pain than white women. See, see, the way Jim Crow worked out for white women is that they were treated as delicate, stay in the home, need to be protected. The way it worked out for black women very practically was that when they were pregnant, they worked right up until the moment of birth. Then, as soon as they gave birth, they'd have to go right back out into the field. But the perception was black women are tough. They can handle this. I'm trying to explain to you ways that the image of God has been systematically defaced in American society over time. More recently, you saw, if you were here this morning, you saw the comparison with uh, a black person and a monkey. Uh, you saw the Negro a, in the image of God or a beast. And, and so these associations of black people with animals, particularly with monkeys or chimpanzees or apes, is ongoing. So not long ago, H&M, the apparel company, had an ad that, that showed this cute little black boy wearing a hoodie that says, coolest monkey in the jungle. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it was a dumb mistake. And there was an uproar online about it. And you contrast this, the, the white boy had a, a, a t-shirt that said like king of the jungle or something. So it's like this master servant or master animal relationship. These things are still happening. We're living in the legacy of this defacing of the image of God. Here's another one. Maybe you've heard that uh, there was a Roseanne, the TV show, there was a reboot recently got canceled because the star of the show said some flat-out racist things. So she's replying to someone's comment, and she says, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. VJ stands for Valerie Jarrett, who's a black woman uh, in o Obama's administration. She was born in Iran, and so there's the Muslim Brotherhood part. But then Planet of the Apes, again, that comparison to an animal and to an ape. In this case, it caused such outrage that, that she got fired from her show, which had just been rebooted. And sort of in sympathy to the rest of the cast and all the writers who were affected by this one person's foolish error, they rebooted the reboot. And so now it's called The Connors. But Roseanne's not on there anymore. But it's partially because she made this ape reference and insulting Muslims. Serena Williams, I don't know if you watched the tennis match, but she was quite upset at the referee and some of the calls that he made. She made her complaints known in a very vocal way. In response, a cartoonist drew this picture. Now, of course, the exaggerated features and the lips and the nose, and then stomping up and down as if in a tantrum like a child rather than the top player in tennis. Uh, I wish I could move it. Um, what's also interesting is the picture of her opponent is, is, looks like a, a blonde-haired white woman, when her actual opponent is, is biracial and dark-skinned. 
And this is just a couple of months ago. So what I'm trying to impress upon you is that American society has white supremacy, which I define very broadly as not only the assumption of white superiority, but the normality of whiteness. White is a deviation. That's so deeply embedded in our society that it comes out even in 2018 when we're supposed to know better. When we pass the Civil Rights Act when we've had the marches, when we've had the protests, when everybody knows the PC words to say, it still leaks out in popular culture, maybe around the dinner table, quite possibly in the church and from the pulpit. Here's one I thought was interesting. It's not of a black person. This is a painting called The Head of Christ by uh, an artist named Warner Salmon who painted it in 1940. It's been said to have been reproduced over half a billion times in little cards you can put in your wallet, in stained glass windows, in magazines, in pamphlets, you name it. I don't know how familiar this generation is with this particular image of Christ, but it was the standard image for decades. It's even up in black churches and Hispanic churches and Asian churches as, as, as the visual representation of Christ. Now, why is that problematic? Because he has this soft brown hair. The eyes are actually blue in the picture. He has this very European nose and thin lips. And so if Jesus was born in Italy or France, maybe that would make sense, but he wasn't. Jesus is a brown-skinned Middle Eastern man. And we forget that, that all kinds of people are made in the image of God, but the assumption is that even when you represent Christ, he would be more European, more white American looking. And think about this, if you're white, what does that do to your understanding of God? It makes you think, well, God is like me. He looks like me and probably values the same things as I do. He's, you, you have refashioned God in your own image. What does it do if you are a person of color? It means God doesn't look like me. You wonder, does God identify with me? And so one of the things we have to do in the church is acknowledge the fact that, that, that God became a human being, and as a human being, he took on flesh, flesh that was probably not light-skinned, features that were probably not European. And what do we do with that? Because if Jesus looks different from Europeans or white Americans, then that messes up our categories a little bit. But I think our categories need to be messed up. So how do we recover the image of God? Well, focus, focus specifically on black people and maybe some movements or phrases you've heard of but maybe didn't connect it with the image of God. But I see in all of these things a connection with the image of God. In the civil rights movement, 
particularly in Memphis during the Poor People's Campaign, people carried around signs that said, I am a man. Now, they don't just mean male, they mean man as in human being. Why would someone have to say, I am a human being? Because they're not being treated like human beings. Did you know that the, the, the sanitation strike that MLK went to help support when he got assassinated, that, that was because two sanitation workers, black men, were cold, didn't have shelter, got into the back of a garbage truck and were accidentally crushed to death. Treated like stray animals on the street, without shelter, without warmth. Did what they could to find some dignity and some basic necessities and were killed. And that's what they were protesting when MLK was assassinated, 1968. This is the year is the 50th anniversary. The black power movement. Now we remember that word black power, and it was about black independence and black self-empowerment, but it was also about black dignity. This is when you get people sort of embracing their blackness in the midst of a culture that had rejected it. So you get people wearing African dashikis. You get people wearing their hair natural and, 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 and the afro flowing out in rebellion uh, to people saying that kinky hair was not beautiful or fashionable. The Black Panthers are known as much for their activism as their aesthetics. The black leather jackets, the turtlenecks, the berets, the hair. And what they were trying to do in the black power movement is say, it doesn't matter what the white culture has told you, black is beautiful, baby. How they would say it. On up to the present day. Black Lives Matter. Now, I think a critical understanding is, is understanding Black Lives Matter as a concept and a principle separate from but related to Black Lives Matter, the organization. But let's talk about Black Lives Matter, the principle. I contend that Black Lives Matter, the principle, is an assertion of the image of God in people of African descent. Black Lives Matter is saying we matter just as much as white people or anyone else. Why? Well, they may not say it, but as a Christian, I see this underlying it. Black Lives Matter is saying we are made in the image of God. We are equal. Black Lives Matter is also, I argue, a lament. It's a crying out, Black Lives Matter. In the context of a nation and a world that seems to argue the exact opposite. Theologian and author Sung Chan Ra put it this way, lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and suffering. He goes on to say, lament is an act of protest as the lamenter is allowed to express indignation and even outrage about the experience of suffering. Racism is sin. It's a result of the fall. It results in injustice. And when people cry out, Black Lives Matter, they are protesting to others and before the face of God that this is wrong. That black lives do matter. Black lives should matter. But from every indication, black lives don't matter. 
I'll end with this. From James 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Now I think this passage has implications for race in the image of God. What if we rephrased it? Let the white brother or sister boast in being brought low because like a flower of the grass, whiteness will pass away. Now I say whiteness. Whiteness as an ideology, as a principle. Whiteness as in white supremacy. Not your skin color. Your skin color is beautiful too. But whiteness, what we've made, how we've constructed a racial hierarchy in America, in this world, you are rich in whiteness. But that whiteness is passing away. And so the gospel says, boast in your humiliation. Boast in your equality. Boast in being brought low on an equal plane with everyone else, whereas white supremacy would boost you up because of your race. It's not that you are more favored, intelligent, desirable, or powerful simply because of your physical features. And whether you intend to or not, whether you're aware or not, you absorb these messages. White people, even, yes, white Christians, can seek a sense of significance based on your skin color. In other words, you develop a certain amount of pride or superiority based on your membership in a racial group. And you're thinking, no, I don't. I don't think like that. It's okay. You don't have to think like that. It can still be going on in the back of your mind. Your assumptions when you see people of color. Your assumptions when you see other white people. That they might be more intelligent or speak a different way. But what I have to say to you is that Jesus topples whiteness off of the racial pyramids, pyramid and reminds you that your skin color does not put you in a class above any other image bearers. White people, your worth is not in whiteness. To black people and other people of color, let the lowly boast in their exaltation, or when it comes to race, let black people boast in their human dignity. The gospel tells black people that no matter what the world says, we are beautifully and wonderfully made. Black is beautiful. God intended it that way. The world has woven a web of lies that says darker skin makes you less attractive, less capable, less intelligent. It has told us that we are threatening and dangerous and thugs or the N-word. But you are not who they say you are. You are who God says you are. You are made in God's image. You are crafted in God's likeness. And you are worthy. You're worthy of love. You're worthy of dignity and respect and justice and joy. And even though our skin color puts us in the category of lowly in the American sense, that's not the final word. God has the final word. And he says, boast in being lifted up because of Jesus. The racial reformation in the American church must prioritize the doctrine of the image of God. And this, you, are the generation that will lead the way in helping us remember that we are God's image bearers and we should treat each other accordingly. Thank you.
So we have an opportunity to ask questions, uh, engage um, with our guest, and I can run to you with the mic if that will help. Um, but raise your hand, they let can me know. Shout it out, and you can. Yeah, it. you can shout it out. Uh, I can. Okay, great. Um, Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Josh. Um, so you mentioned many unfair and hateful representations of African Americans. Um, I was wondering, I think we can also say there have been many unfair and hateful representations of people groups like police officers or, um, say, Donald Trump supporters or people of that nature. And I was wondering, what does it look like for us to respond to that? So I decry any name calling on any side whatsoever, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, police officer, protester, whatever it might be, because all of that is a denigration of the image of God. Uh, even when we disagree as Christians, we know that we owe one another a certain amount of dignity, if not because I agree with you, because God has made you. So that's fair, and that should be said. Um, what I would press in on is... Uh, the idea of a false equivalency. So there's this issue of power. The N-word, for instance, has historically been used by white people toward black people to denigrate an entire group. That's not right. Neither is it right for a black person to call a white person a name, but here's the thing. These words and these concepts, not every group has the power to enshrine them in institutions, economically, politically, what have you. And if you're talking about law enforcement, I respect police officers because they put their lives on the line. Many of you may have relatives who are police officers or thinking about going into law enforcement. And here's the thing, you can have great individual officers but they're embedded in a system that makes it very difficult to be righteous. So for instance, look at Ferguson. There, was a, there were two Department of Justice reports that came out after Ferguson. One was an autopsy that showed what happened in the altercation between Mike Brown and Darren Wilson. It revealed that Wilson, uh, Mike Brown had engaged in an altercation in the SUV, had been shot in the hand, it showed that Mike Brown was facing Darren Wilson when he got shot. It showed where the bullets entered the body, and ultimately it showed that he did not have his hands up, most likely. And that was the refrain, remember? It said, hands up, don't shoot. That was the chant. And the autopsy revealed something different. So a lot of people who are pro-law enforcement sort of focused and honed in on that one report. But remember, I said there were two reports. What did the second report say? The second report studied the Ferguson Police Department. It found that this majority white police force policing a majority black community was using their law enforcement power for city revenue. They would catch people in minor infractions such as jaywalking, ticket them, and collect the money. Or if they didn't have the money, they would become incarcerated, which led to a spiral of different ills. 
Now this is hard for white people to hear. A lot of white people, maybe not you, I don't know. But one of the biggest areas where I think the church has to grow if we want to see a racial reformation is understanding the difference between individual and institutional injustice. So we have this concept of individual injustice because we understand sin. And we know that we're unrighteous and we know that we fail and we know we should be pursuing personal holiness. When it comes to race, the way that works out is racism as a sin is interpersonal. It's one to one. One person doesn't like another person because of their skin color or culture. And that's true. What many people in the majority fail to understand is racism also works itself out in systemic and institutional ways. Doesn't require personal animus to operate. So if we want to talk about police and law enforcement, then I think we need to bear both of those in mind, the individual and the institutional. Individuals have responsibility for their own behavior. That goes for the perpetrator and the police officer. At the same time, if you look at the history of law enforcement, I'll recommend an article that's online, One Continuous Graveyard by Carrie Lee Merritt, L-E-I-G-H Merritt, two R's, two T's, I think. One Continuous Graveyard. She talks about the origins of the police force. And the root is important because it sometimes determines the fruit. Prior to the Civil War, you didn't have many cities that had an organized police force. They would rely on a posse or a militia if anybody was out of line. And prior to the Civil War, most of their targets were poor white people, poor white men. What do you think happened after the Civil War? Emancipation. Now you have all these free black people. And you don't have the system of slavery to control black bodies. And I say bodies because racism always evidences itself in a physical control. Now, all of a sudden, you get a line item in the city budget for a police force. And now, the target isn't poor white people. The target is black people. And after emancipation, the South is still an agricultural, rural economy. So they still need a huge labor force. But now that you've freed all the slaves, where are you going to get the laborers? So something enters called convict leasing. It's a familiar pattern. They pick up black people for minor infractions like vagrancy. You know what qualified as vagrancy? You didn't have a pass from a white employer and somebody encountered you on the street, they could arrest you. When they arrested you, they could do whatever they want. What happened is big farms or sometimes companies and, and mining companies would contract out with the prison for laborers. Now, they wouldn't pay black laborers. As a matter of fact, they worked them to death. There's an article that just came out this week, recently discovered graveyard full of convict lease prisoners who had died on the job, basically been dumped in unmarked graves. Prison would get money from the company. The company would get free labor. And one author has called it a fate worse than slavery. So I say all that because when you study the history, you start to get a sense of the institutional and systemic dimensions of this thing. 
where no, we may not be able to point to a particular police officer and say, he's the problem, she's the problem. But we can point to a system where uh, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative says, uh, it's better to be rich and guilty than to be poor and innocent in the American criminal justice system. Now that's not one person's decision, that's not one person's actions, but it's a system set up that creates an entire class of what, I, what Jesus calls the least of these. And so I think as Christians, we ought to pay attention to those systems. The Bible calls it unjust scales. The Bible talks about doing justice. Thank you. Very helpful. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, yes. Uh, superiority is a denial of the image of God. And then you mentioned, uh, like, in the past, that some ways the superiority would have looked like segregation and slavery, which I think if anybody were to vote on it now, would they would not, they would say that's no, right? And then you also said that, uh, that it's all gender. And so I was just wondering what are some ways that in present you might see superiority, especially being gender? in just like the average person. Mm. So what are some ways in the present that you could see racism, a gendered racism in contemporary terms? And then what was the second part? Or is that it? I made it up. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, so there's a spectrum of racism, right? Okay. Um, so over time, one of the things I say in my book, The Color of Compromise, Frequently, I say, racism never goes away, it just adapts. Racism never goes away, it just adapts. So, one of the things that makes it hard to see racism today is because it doesn't look like racism used to look. In other words, in the antebellum era, when there was slavery and it was legal, it was easy to see racism. It was white people literally owning black people, putting them to work without pay and brutalizing them in the midst of it. Then, after the Civil War and Emancipation, we talked about Jim Crow. So now racism doesn't look like physical chains on people, unless you're talking about mass incarceration. Now racism looks like segregation. Racism looks like saying, you know, black people drink at this water fountain, white people at this one. People of color go to this school, white people go to that school. People of color are qualified for these jobs. White people are qualified for more. Those kinds of things. In the present day, racism looks like the, they seem invisible, but they're very apparent when you dig into it. The systems and the structures that were set up purposely to keep a certain group in power. So what does that look like? Uh, the practice of redlining which is uh, residential segregation. In the 1930s, uh, as part of the New Deal, they came up with the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the HOLC. What the HOLC would do is there was a bunch of people, white people, who couldn't afford their mortgage anymore in the Depression. So what the HOLC would do is buy up those mortgages and reissue them under better, more affordable terms. But whenever you give a loan, you take a risk. And so to assess the risk, the federal government would explore the surrounding neighborhood 
and it would determine the value of a house based on the surrounding neighborhood. Well, you can guess what happened to the value of a house if even a single black family was in that neighborhood. Plummeted. Some people have said that integration is the period between when the first black person moves in and the last white person moves out. So the way residential segregation worked was the HOLC and redlining. So it's, it, it literally segregated people into certain neighborhoods. Later on, after World War II, you get uh, the GI Bill and certain benefits. And what would happen is those benefits were disproportionately given to white men. They got the home loans. They got the, the scholarships for college. What happens over time is you have a house. Wealth is determined by your assets. Your house is your biggest asset. So right now, according to which estimate you use, white people have 11 to 13 times the wealth of black people. Why? Is it because black people are just bad with money? Is it because black people are lazy? Or is it because a system was set up even decades ago that excluded them from certain benefits? So to answer your question, what we have to do is begin looking at these systems that were set up so long ago that we've forgotten the racialized nature of it, but still operate to give certain advantages to white people and disadvantage other people of color and women, just for example. Really, honestly, great question. Um, so I, w I was at a, a, a lunch with faculty and staff earlier today, and uh, I said three things related to your question as far as practical things that church leaders could do. Um, one is talk about politics more, not less. Two warn against the dangers of Fox News. And three, learn theology from historically marginalized and oppressed groups. So number one, I think we should talk about politics more, not less. Now, I do differentiate between politics and partisanship. So what we often hear coming from the pulpit is vote red or vote blue. I think voting is such a complicated thing, so many moving pieces and such a personal decision, you can't sort of impose one party as the Christian party. Uh, so you can't really tell people how to vote. What you can do is give them a framework. For instance, we're members of the heavenly kingdom, but we're also members of this earthly kingdom. And what I argue is that part of being a good neighbor is exercising your civic responsibility. 
I also argue that as far as the disunity that we have in terms of Christians and politics, we sort of need to take a step back. And I looked at Matthew 25, and it was that reference to the least of these. And Jesus is saying at the judgment, who's going to be on his right hand, who's going to be on his left, people on his right hand are the ones who fed the hungry and clothed the poor and visited the sick and the imprisoned. And the ones who are on his left are those who didn't because he says, as you did or didn't do it for the least of these, my brothers, you did or didn't do it for me. So how do we translate that into politics? Politics is not to protect the powerful. Politics is to be used to deploy power on behalf of the earthly powerless or the least of these. So I think if Christians bore that in mind, and you applied that to specific issues like immigration, like health care, like uh, voting restrictions, I don't know that we would all come to the same conclusion or follow the same path, but I would hope that a focus on the least of these would give us some common starting ground. And I think pastors and church leaders should talk about politics more, not less. Number two, all media is biased. Some media tends toward liberal, some media tends toward conservative, but having a bias does not automatically disqualify you from being helpful. You just have to realize the bias. And for the best media outlets, even with a bias, they're trying to report what actually happened. I'm sure they have a perspective. But there are some outlets, and I'm just going to say it, Fox News increasingly so, that A, sets itself, sets itself up as a Christian-friendly network. You do not have other outlets doing that necessarily on the liberal end. You don't have the Huffington Post setting itself up as the Christian outlet. So for a news network that's going to say that, then at the very least, you're going to honor the truth. But the spin on Fox News, and you know this from talking to parents and grandparents and relatives, it's its own encapsulated ecosystem of information. I'm not saying don't watch it at all, but at least watch it in conversation with other news outlets because some of the fear mongering, the denigration of the image of God in other people is disgusting. And Christians, many, are lapping it up, taking it as God's truth. And we do need to talk about the historic alignment between white evangelicalism, which would include some branches of the Reformed Church, and the GOP, the Republican Party. You look at the rise of what was called the moral majority in the late 70s. GOP operatives, in partnership with Christian leaders, set up the Republican Party as the, quote, Christian party. That's why you get the, quote, Christian right. You don't have the Democratic Party setting itself up as the Christian Party in the same way. I say that because both parties have major issues. Democrats and Republicans is a very, 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 very flawed political system that we have right now. But in terms of theologically conservative Christians, they haven't been identifying and aligning themselves with the Democratic Party as the Christian Party. So I want to critique Christians who say there's a Christian Party and call it the Republican right. 
you got to critique that. And you can still be, here's my take, be a faithful Christian and be Republican. Be a faithful Christian and be a Democrat. Be a faithful Christian and be independent. I don't think there's one God's party. I think we can be salt and light in all the political parties. What I'm arguing against is saying that the Christian party is the Republican party. You, you, you feel that distinction? I know it's a loaded topic, but that's more reason to talk about it, not less. Otherwise, we're going to get shaped by Fox News or some other outlet that's not the church. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you have a son. Am I correct? How are you treating the discussion of race with him? I don't know how old he is, but um, generally speaking, as or for black males, at some point in their life, their parents have a discussion with them like, you're going to have to keep your guard up for the rest of your life. Yeah. So how are you treating that discussion with your son? Well, I actually have a three-minute video on the topic. <laughs> Just came out. It was awesome. Uh, the Atlantic produced a video. It's an animated video, and I do the voiceover and the content for it. But you can Google how to talk to your kids about race, and maybe Jamar Tisby. I don't know. It'll come up. Or you can look on my social media feed. So there is like a little three-minute info thing. But in general, I say the only wrong way to talk about race is not to talk about it at all. Uh, so I think what happens a lot of times with both black and white families and other people of color uh, is that because race is such a complicated, delicate topic, we're afraid to get it wrong, we don't talk about it. But again, it's just like your cell phone right now. It's, a, it's absorbing like radio signals and whatnot. It's doing its thing without you being conscious and aware of it. You are absorbing messages about race, so are kids. And unless adults help shape their ideas about race, they're going to absorb really harmful ideas. And so I think we talk about it more and more. So I talk about it all the time with my son. We have, he's in second grade, so we have all these kids books that feature characters of different colors. I talk about the film um, Zootopia, the animated movie, which if you look at the subtest, it's, it's, it's wonderful um, on, on talking about diversity and, and race and power and, and assumptions and stereotypes. So you can even use kids movies to sort of enter into the conversation. Uh, but one advantage that you have living in the South is that so much of our nation's racial history is physically present. And so I'm often in Mississippi and other places around the Deep South. So my son has already been to the National Civil Rights Museum several times. That's in Memphis. It's built onto the Lorraine Motel where King was assassinated. And you start out uh, and then you, you end up at the hotel. The, the motel room where King was staying when he got killed, and there's a wreath on the balcony at the exact spot where he was killed. So he's seen that. The other day we went down to Ruleville, Mississippi, which is where Fannie Lou Hamer is from, and we visited the Memorial Park there, and I got to tell him about voting rights and activism. So I think one of the best things that we can do, not only for young kids but for college students, is making pilgrimages to these places where significant moments in, in uh, American history and black history occurred. Because there's something about the tangibility. There's something about walking on the same ground that, that, that makes this stuff that we see on a screen or read in a book much more real. And what I hope happens is that all of us have a burden 
because what drove people to literally risk their lives for basic rights like voting was they had a burden about injustice. And how dare we, who stand on the shoulders of their work, not have a burden for injustice today? How dare we rest on what others did and what others risk and not, especially as Christians, take on the burdens of other people and try to work for justice today. But that seems abstract unless you see some of these sites or talk to some of the people. Talk to some of the saints who were alive in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s and what they went through. It's going to transform you. You will not be able to understand these issues in the same way or to simply not take action. Thank you. We have just time for, for one or two more. And I'll stick around after. Oh, yeah, yeah. and we'll stay for a little bit after. <laughs> um, so in light of how like polarized so many of our information sources are today, what are some sources of information that you recommend for us so that we can hear like the black voice in our country today? Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I do have a website, yes. Uh, there's a website, The Witness BCC, Black Christian Collective, thewitnessbcc.com. We, we write about these issues. Uh, we do have a podcast called Pass the Mic, M-I-C, where we talk about these issues, Pass the Mic. So I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast. Um, but seriously, I mean, there are. that's one of the reasons why we had to start this, these outlets is because um, other majority white online outlets just weren't having the discussions uh, frequently or, or we thought with enough nuance. Other sources, I really recommend, uh, there, there's so many good documentaries out there. So Netflix's The 13th, 13th directed by Ava DuVernay, talks about mass incarceration. Um, there's a, a documentary by Henry Louis Gates. He's a, a, at Harvard and it's called The African Americans. Many Rivers to Cross. Um, if you want to know about systemic racism, a really thin, readable book is Ira Katznelson's When Affirmative Action Was White, talking about how government programs systematically advantaged white people in the 50s and 60s. Um, there's another book that I highly recommend for anyone wanting to learn about race in the church and why we are separated racially in the first place, and that's called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. I recommend uh, reading. So, so for black people, for a long time, we were not allowed to read and, read and write. So if you want to see our knowledge and our theology, you have to look in sort of non-traditional sources. So I recommend uh, uh, you know, getting um, books of sermons. One of the, one of the um, it's not a book of sermons, but a, a really good book on theology that's very thin and readable is Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Uh, so there are, those are some sources that will get you started. Otherwise, and, and I, I don't care. I'm going to promote my own book because somebody's got to buy it and somebody's got to do it. Um, I have almost 400 footnotes in the book. And... Many of them are references to academic histories or even articles. And so if you pick up a book like that, it's just going to lead you down a thousand different trails. The other thing I would say is, first of all, I'm a huge advocate 
of learning history if you want to get started in this sort of like racial justice thing. You got to know the context. And to start with history, start local. Ask questions about what's around you. What are the names of the buildings on campus? Who are they representing? What, are, what monuments do you have in town? Who are the counties named after? Those kinds of questions, the, the best research always starts with a good question. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hi. Um, first off, I really like your coat. Where'd you get it? Thank you. I don't know. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. Um, yeah, so um, I was just curious because I have uh, my own kind of personal experience with racism in America. Mm. I actually got beat up uh, for being white, and it was called Justice by Two Black Boys. Um, and I was actually the racial minority at the high school that I went to, so I just have a different take on it, I guess, than most people. But um, what would you say to, I, I've heard people call it reverse racism. I, I don't necessarily believe in that. I just right. kind of think there's just racism. Yeah. Um, but like in the past, a lot of times it ends up happening, and I'm not just talking about America, just as like a general rule when um, certain systems are overthrown um, there can be a lot of push in the exact opposite direction, and things can almost end up back where things started, except on the flip side. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's possible that could happen or be happening? And if so, like, what should be done about that? Like, yeah. So, so I mean, I'll just be straight up with you. A lot of people use that phrase reverse racism, and I don't think it's a thing. I think it's a false equivalency because, there's again, there's this thing called power. So. Um, you know, to get real nuanced, and you can agree or disagree with this, but you said, how would I respond to that? Um, uh, many people, sociologists, social psychologists would say uh, minorities can be prejudiced but not racist. I know that sounds wild, right? Um, so the idea behind that, 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 that differentiation is that minorities can hate other people just as much as people in the majority based on skin color, gender, wealth, whatever it might be. So no racial group has a monopoly on bigotry. Um, and, and, and that's what you experience, is people of color, because of your color, acting out violently towards you. Uh, the, 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 that's wrong and that's bad and I'm really pained to hear that. Um, the difference would be in every society one group tends to have the power to enforce their bigotry on a broad scale. So when white people don't like black people in America, they have slavery, they have segregation, and black people not liking, liking white people or, or even hating white people has never created a system nationwide that has disenfranchised white people. I don't know the context very well, but I do know colonialism and imperialism. Things might happen on a micro scale that are not happening on a macro scale. And we're in, in the United States, which is my focus, so let me, that, that's, all, that's all I'll say about that. Um, there are certainly experts on South Africa that I would, but you know what's interesting, uh, Tyler Burns, my co-host, went to South Africa two weeks ago, met with a group of uh, white and black South Africans and it was really interesting that they're dealing with some of the same issues in the church that we're dealing with over here as far as racism and identity and having a voice. 
So they listen to pass the mic in South Africa. So I'm sure there are similarities and differences. Um, but to the reverse racism part, it's like who has the power to enforce their racism on a broad scale, uh, which is not taking away from the, the disgusting event that happened to you or people you know. Uh, but we need to be able to be wise about these things and say this horrible thing happened, but it's different than this other horrible thing that happened. And I'm, I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic at all. Thank you. We'll, um, will you pray for us? Yes. Thank you. Lord, you said that uh, the truth can cut and divide. And so I hope we've groped toward the truth today. And if anyone's feeling sort of uh, unrest or, or feeling unsettled, then I pray, God, it's a, it's a good kind of disruption that would lead us to healthier relationships across racial lines that would lead us to a deeper and more passionate love of neighbor. We pray, Lord, that the church, we as believers, would be beacons in this world because we can't rely on politics or government or any other sort of outlet to lead the way. We have to be that city on a hill. And God, we pray that you would empower us to be that and help us not to be afraid, Lord, of conflict or disagreement, but realize that what unites us is stronger than what divides us and then be empowered to have these conversations because we know nobody's gonna get up and walk away. Nobody's going to reject one another because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the folks who came out tonight, Lord. I pray that you have planted a seed that would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please. to steal them after a while.